Welcome to another episode of A Language I Love Is, a podcast all about language, linguistics, and love. I am your trusty host, Danny, and this time you and I are journeying to ancient Mesopotamia to hear all about a very important language of that region and beyond, Akkadian. Our expert guide is Iris Camille of the University of Edinburgh, who is both a skilled communicator and a great enthusiast of all things ancient and linguistic. Okay, I am once again uh, recruiting a friend of mine to give up a lot of their free time and uh, come talk to me about a language that they are very passionate about. Uh, Not only very passionate, but also a great expert in this language, so I think we're all in for a treat. Uh, Last time, we were in the the chilly lowlands of Scotland. This time, we're travelling many thousands of miles to Mesopotamia, and we're actually also travelling back in time because, well, we're going to learn about an an extinct language, a language that is historical. I'm currently talking to Iris Camille. Iris is a PhD student at the University of Edinburgh, like me, uh, formerly of the University of uh, Vienna, and she is both a linguist and an Assyriologist. Iris, please tell me, and everyone listening, what is a language that you love? First of all, thank you very much, Danny, for having me. Uh, a language that I love uh, is Akkadian. Uh, Akkadian with two Ks, I should also say, <laughs> not with two Cs. That is a different type of Akkadian. Mm-hmm. A- a- exactly, yes. So that's a very, very helpful point right <laughs> yeah. from the start of as well. We're not talking about Canadian French. Um, this is, you know, Canadian French is still hale and hearty. Uh, with this is a language that is, you know, unfortunately now resigned to the past. This is Akkadian with two Ks. Now, I've mentioned Mesopotamia, and Akkadian is a language of Mesopotamia. It, was, it went far beyond that region of the world. But I think first and foremost, let's get a sense of time. Um, when was this language spoken? When are our earliest records and when are our final records for Akkadian? So, find, like determining when Akkadian was, uh, well, first attested, it's, it's a little bit hard because our first attestations of it um, are really restricted to personal names um, that we find. We start seeing them around the 28th century BCE, which means, of course, that it was spoken much before that, right? But uh, the personal names start appearing in the region of Mesopotamia and in written form uh, around 27,000 BCE. It is attested in cuneiform, so Akkadian was written in cuneiform, a script that was invented for Sumerian, uh, an unrelated language, by the way, And we find the last cuneiform tablets of Akkadian dated to the year of 79 AD. Wow, okay, so this is a long time span. That's fantastic. I mean, for a historical linguist, that is invaluable to have this huge time span. You can really see the way that the language has changed. So you mentioned Sumerian. You mentioned that Sumerian also spoken in Mesopotamia. Um, These are two languages that are very much in contact with one another, but not related. So what is the genealogy of Akkadian? Uh, what other languages is it related to? Any languages that, you know, that we might know, for example? 
So Akkadian is a Semitic language, uh, which means that it is related to languages such as Hebrew, Arabic, Amharic, Aramaic, uh, also the modern South Arabian languages, which are perhaps a little less known. Um, these are languages spoken today in Yemen and Oman. But yeah, it is related to Arabic, all of the Arabic dialects, Hebrew, modern and classical, uh, Aramaic, again, classical and modern. We still have a lot of uh, spoken Aramaic also. Amharic, which is spoken in Ethiopia. Ge'ez, which is uh, used to be spoken in Ethiopia and Eritrea. Um, also a lot of Ethiopian languages or generally Ethiosemitic languages uh, such as uh, Chaha, Tigre, Tigrinya, Garage in general. Um, yes, these are all languages that are related to Akkadian. Now, Akkadian itself is uh, genealogically classified as East Semitic, whereas all of these other languages that I just mentioned are West Semitic, which means that we've had a split between these two language groups uh, quite early on, probably even before Akkadian uh, was first attested. Uh, but we can still see uh, lots of similarities between them, especially in terms of vocabulary and uh, also basic uh, grammatical structures in the language, um, specifically looking at the verbs. Okay, very good. Yes, so so very much is a recognisably Semitic language, Akkadian. The question that first pops to mind is that it's in a very general Semitic context. You've just mentioned all these Semitic languages, which are still around today all across you know the middle east and uh, and into africa but there's no akkadian so what happened to akkadian where did it go uh it died out yeah um it died out probably i mean specialists also fight about that um i would say that akkadian died out about uh somewhere between 400 and 200 bce probably around 300 bce um so it was actually written uh for several centuries after it had already died out uh in favor of aramaic which took over the region as the lingua franca and also eventually also the um, common language that was spoken in Mesopotamia. There are claims to uh, modern descendants of Akkadian, uh, many different languages, uh, not many, but a few different languages claim to be descendants, uh, but I do not know that uh, the Semiticists or linguists uh, would formally agree um, or would be very certain uh, yeah, to agree that any of these languages are, in fact, descendants of Akkadian. Okay, understood. So that's helpful. So I suppose then the next question to ask would be, who is speaking it back in those days? I mean, is there a particular people, culture that's associated with it? You mentioned a lingua franca. That says to me that Akkadian is going far beyond one particular culture or group. So if we wind back the clock across that broad span... What kind of people are speaking Akkadian? The people who brought Akkadian um, to the to Mesopotamia uh, would be the Akkadians originally, uh, a Semitic people. We do not know much about them, however. Uh, we know that in general, um, most groups, 
at least the Semitic groups that uh, entered the picture uh, of Mesopotamia, they always tended to come from the West. Uh, but where exactly from the West or when they started to come from the like at what point from the West, uh, we never really know. Once they had brought Akkadian, of course, um, a new people entering a new political, geopolitical region, um, it took a while until they really caught uh, foot, if you can say that in English, um, in the region. Um, it took a while until they they um, built up prestige and ended up in, uh, well, prestigious uh, positions. Uh, this is also one of the first Semitic names that um, we have on record, uh, Pu'abi, which might be more well-known among uh, non-specialists. She was uh, the first known Semitic uh, or like princess with a Semitic name, attested around 2700 BCE. But from there, uh, once the Akkadians had built up a certain degree of social prestige, that's when they started to export Akkadians. So it became the most commonly spoken language in Mesopotamia, driving out Sumerian. Uh, and then with the expansion of Babylonia, um, it spanned out to the Levant, for example. It spanned out to the Hurrian regions. Um, and we have a lot of the dialects that are called Canaanite uh, Akkadian or Haro Akkadian. And yeah, the, these were all uh, varieties that were tested until about 1000 uh, BCE, even a little bit later um, with the Assyrian expansions that also went to the Levant. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Okay, thank you for that. That's a good, good overview. Mm -hmm. I am just staggered by the fact that we have a personal name from that long ago, you know, that we have a personal name and therefore a person that we can presume to have existed, this, mm -hmm. this princess. Um, and I think that is perhaps one of the joys of working with Acadian. I've seen this in, you know, in, in what you do and how enthusiastic you talk about it. We have a fantastic amount of sources for this language, um, you know, from across that time span that you mentioned, um, you know, that we really you know, very personal, really get into the kind of the everyday life of people in Mesopotamia through this language and through the texts. I suppose there's a reason why we have this for Akkadian, and that's really to do with the type of the sources that that they made. I'm thinking especially of materials. I wonder if that's something that uh, you, you know you can share your uh, love for. Yes, of course. Um, so cuneiform uh, was written on clay tablets with reed styluses. What they would do is they would um, now reeds are hollow on the inside, right? So they would cut out triangular shapes out of this. Um, barrier that reeds have and this would um, serve as this triangular shape right that we see in in cuneiform they could either stamp the uh, stylus into the clay tablet making the triangular shape or they could also drag it make it making a line right so this is why you see these uh, triangles and lines in cuneiform now clay when it hardens when it uh, dries becomes quite durable uh, and even if it wasn't burned which uh, a lot of the times well they, they didn't burn it usually uh, back then 
but we're quite lucky that uh, there was a lot of war uh, in the region. And so every time uh, someone won, they would burn the city <laughs> and that would burn all of the clay tablets for us, which would preserve them even better. <laughs> and that makes for quite uh, hardy and <laughs> quite well preserved. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, as accidental firings then. Oh, gosh. Okay. So even the tablets which they did not fire and, uh, you know, to make them deliberately durable, some of them were accidentally fired by by war. Oh, wow. Okay. But, yeah, I suppose yes. this is just this is just everyday seriology, <laughs> I think. Yes. So, that's a brilliant introduction, I feel. We're very uh, comfortable now talking about Acadian. Right, we are now in an excellent position vis-à-vis -vis Akkadian. We've got a good sense of uh, this language, where it was spoken, uh, what happened to it, who spoke it, what its relationship was to other languages. Um, so that's a really good crash course in this awesome ancient language. Now it's time to, you know, hear a bit more about you, Iris, and your relationship to Akkadian. Um, I, as far as I know, Akkadian is your main focus as a language. It's something that you are currently working on. So what's the story of you and this language? How did you come to study Akkadian? What was your sort of academic route? And what are you working on at the moment? So tell us all. I first stumbled onto Acadian uh, in my undergraduate degree. Uh, I did it in linguistics, uh, mostly theoretical linguistics at the time. Uh, but the University of Vienna requires you to do a set of minors um, while you study your major. Uh, and they can usually be made up of little blocks of minors. Uh, and one of the blocks that you could do was history, which I always really, really enjoyed. Um, and so I, when I started history, I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll start at the very beginning with ancient history. And the professor there spoke about Mesopotamia and ancient Israel for about two to three weeks, um, and then moved on to Greece and Rome, which is all very interesting in its own right. But I've, I've already studied that at school uh, to great detail. And I realized that I had never actually learned anything about Mesopotamia. And so the next semester, um, I actually saw that you could study the ancient languages that were spoken there at the time, namely Akkadian and Sumerian. And the second I saw that, I signed up for it. I loved it from the very beginning. I actually spent all summer before even starting the course uh, looking at ancient cities and coming up with etymologies um, that in the end, none of them were right. Um, but when I asked my professor um, about them after the first uh, lesson in Akkadian that I had ever had, um, he sort of immediately understood that I was a linguist and recruited me um, to also study Aramaic um, at the department. And that was really my, my first step onto um, Akkadian, Aramaic, Semitic uh, in general. Anything that went beyond my native language, which is Hebrew. Um, I see. So I can, I can see the connections there. But um, why specifically Akkadian? You know, we have a wealth of languages from that region and that time period. So is there something, is there a certain je ne sais quoi about Akkadian that really attracted you to it? 
It really does. Yeah, it ha- it is a bit of a fairy tale story. I like to call it uh, the way I discovered Akkadian and also the way I discovered my my PhD topic. So what I am working on right now is in fact some like that very first realization that I had uh, when I spoke to my professor about Akkadian and Aramaic verbs, which is that Semitic has something called binyan or template um, in for its verbs and nouns uh, and also some adjectives. Um, and what it essentially refers to is the following. In Semitic, general word building that, uh, as far as nouns and verbs are concerned, follows a very, very basic um, mechanism that combines roots with templates. Roots are usually three consonants uh, that have some sort of base meaning, you could say. So one very famous example is kutub, uh, which has to do with writing. So in Hebrew, for example, we can say katav, which is he wrote. We can say michtav, which is a letter. Uh, we can say khtiv, which is script. Uh, and so you can see um, all of these words, they always have kutub or khtub. And it always refers to something that is related to writing. And this very basic word building mechanism is something that we have across Semitic and the templates that we have. So a template um, is basically just the pattern in which we insert these consonants, right? These templates, they can be, they can differ across Semitic, uh, but what is the same in Semitic is that they all have them. And further, they would all have sort of a basic set of templates. So they will all have something that we call template patterns or something that I refer to as template patterns. So we have some, basically we call them simple, intensive and causative uh, template patterns. So we can turn most, not all, but most verbal roots into simple template, which is um, usually just a reflection. Uh, It's just a verb that uh, would denote the basic meaning of a root. We can also form an intensive, in which case we would usually double the middle consonant. So remember, roots usually have three consonants, and we would have uh, something like something like that. Um, The intensive um, templates are a bit more difficult to understand. Uh, They can usually denote something like to make something uh, XYZ or to affect XYZ. And then finally, uh, yeah, I should say they are, they're not so well understood. And there is a very big part of my dissertation to understand uh, that particular uh, pattern better. Um, but yeah, we also finally have the causative uh, template pattern, which usually, but not always will denote some sort of meaning of uh, to make XYZ to affect XYZ. Um, it is sometimes similar to the intensive, but not always. And this is, yeah, this is just something that we find in all Semitic languages. And one thing that really fascinated me about Akkadian was that it did that too. And when I 
learned Hebrew, I learned it as a native language. And I, I only went to school for two years uh, in Israel. So I never really learned about formal grammar there. Uh, and when my professor explained to me how that system worked, it just really opened my eyes about my own native language that I had, I could use perfectly, right? But I did not actually know what I was doing. And seeing that Akkadian worked exactly the same way as my native language was just really mind blowing for me. And that, that this is what bought me essentially the, the verbal system, this root and template system that we have there yeah amazing absolutely amazing so it's akkadian this ancient language is then in return giving you knowledge about your own language through you know through centuries yes. of history you know that divides the two um and essentially you know i'm a historical linguist i think it's safe to presume these different semitic languages have these features because these features are very very old uh they go back to their yes. common ancestor so we're talking you know millennia yes. ago Awesome. Okay. That's wonderful. I can absolutely see why uh, you've fallen a little bit in love with Akkadian. Um, and I, yeah, makes total sense to me. You've given us a great example of some features of the language and grammatical features that you are working on at the moment. Aside from those, what is something that you love about Akkadian? It could be anything. It doesn't have to be grammatical. Just tell us something that you just think, this is awesome. I'm glad I'm studying this, and I think other people should study it too. I mean, of course, the grammar, I could speak for ages and hours about the grammar and all the features that I love, but I think one thing perhaps non-related to the grammar is the corpus of Akkadian. It's just phenomenal to see how... So I, I work predominantly on letters, um, personal letters uh, from the corpus of Mari, which um, was an ancient city now situated in modern-day Syria. And to see how people almost 4,000 years ago tended to have the exact same problems that we have today to see how parents interacted with their children. So one of a very famous correspondence is between Shamshiadu, the king of uh, Upper Mesopotamia, with his younger son, Yasmahadu, uh, who was the real definition of a good-for-nothing, uh, is just absolutely hilarious. <laughs> it is hilarious. It is amazing. I love it so much. We see so many issues such as bilingual upbringing or, you know, just sons being lazy and undutiful to their parents, sons like just lying around in the harem all day while the older brother is out there fighting in the war being uh quote unquote a real man and that is a real <laughs> uh, passage that we find in the letters it's just amazing to see how some discourses have just really not changed much over almost 4000 years akkadian in general is just so worth studying for the texts that we see and for all the attitudes that people used to have back then um yeah 
I mean, it's, yeah, it, it's amazing. <laughs> every historical language, I mean, we're so bound to texts, but it definitely makes the day job yeah. so much more fun when the texts are so enjoyable and so relatable. As you say, just, you know, yeah. we are separated by thousands of years to these people, but it's all so familiar to us, the problems they're having. I'm not sure if people are aware of it at the moment, but there is an Akkadian tablet i'm thinking of a specific letter that's taking the internet by storm i'm thinking specifically of aya nasir i apologize for my pronunciation yeah. aya nasir the terrible copper merchant <laughs> aya nasir i apologize um but the you yeah. know the the copper merchant who's still making us laugh today mm -hmm. um with just the, the most delightfully yes. niche memes and online humor that just yes. it just goes to show that these acadian documents are alive you know, they're amazing. They're not dry yes, at all. Absolutely. And and the with Air Nazir, unfortunately, only that one tablet is so popular, but we have found an entire archive, basically his archive, filled with complaints sent to him, uh, but also some of the replies, actually, that he sent to his angry customers. Um, the whole corpus is so enjoyable. Yes. We actually have the we actually have the responses. <laughs> yes, yes, we do. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Some so we have this this, yeah. this terrible cheating copper merchant in Mesopotamia. We have yes. all his angry hate mail, and then we have his attempts to yes. to respond to people. What, what does he do? Him does he fight? Gaslighting. Yeah. He actually gaslighting. Oh, so he says like, yeah. yes. <laughs> so he says like, oh, it's so fine. He just tells them to chill. <laughs> yeah, chill. Don't worry. It's yeah. <laughs> oh, this is incredible. See, I, I absolutely get it. And no wonder that you are just so enthusiastic for this language. I mean, and what a <laughs> what an amazing way into it as well, just through the lives of yes. these very relatable people with their everyday problems. The, because of literacy, because of the material that mm. these documents are made of, as we say, clay, that we still have access to them to this day. I just think that's awesome. So I, I, I totally yes. get it. So, you know, we're being very enthusiastic here. I think I have to, though, I have to get you to be definite, okay? What is something <laughs> that you want the audience to know about Akkadian? Tell us one specific thing, like a takeaway point, like, whoa, I did not know that about this language. Okay, I will tell you something again about the corpus of Akkadian and about the state of research that we're in, just to motivate people to work on it, to... Out of everything that we have so far excavated and documented, we have only translated uh, or actually published about 5 to 10%. Out of everything that is findable, we estimate that we have only found about one, between 1% one and 3%. So there is so much more work to do for Akkadian and also Sumerian, actually. And so if anyone is interested in this career, there is a lot, a lot, a lot of work still to be done. It is so fascinating, so rich. There, You could specialize in anything that interests you, but make it Akkadian or make it Sumerian. <laughs> um, <laughs> you really could. <laughs> so I really encourage anyone who is interested in this language. There is so much work still out there to be done. We are desperately looking for people. That's right. Okay, great. Now I want to study Akkadian. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. <laughs> now I, I want to join you guys now. This sounds absolutely incredible. The idea that there is so much work to be done. We've barely scratched the surface, yes. you know, both literally and figuratively, barely. in terms of what's out there. Yes. 
Uh, oh, wow. Okay. Well, th thank you very much for that, you know, enthusiastic <laughs> recruitment drive uh, for uh, for Acadian Please. studies. <laughs> yeah, I, I think <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, I think that's uh, I think that's really good to know. Two final short questions mm -hmm. from me. Um, where can people mm -hmm. study Acadian? Where are some places that you recommend that people check out? And where can people find you and your research? So to study Acadian, uh, there are really a few major places. Um, in the UK, uh, you can study it in London, uh, Oxford, Cambridge. I am unsure about uh, Birmingham and Liverpool, but institutes keep on closing and shutting down. <laughs> you can study it in Dublin, I know. You can study it in France on the mainland, uh, in Germany, Austria, of course, where I studied, and it's highly recommended. <laughs> uh, you can study it in Italy. Uh, you can study it all over the United States, uh, also in Canada. Um, there is even a, a place, I think a, a department in Brazil that you can study in. It's really just um, a Google search away. There's a lot of Assyriology. There's also a lot of hidden, like maybe not direct ways to study Assyriology. You could go through archaeology or the classics and find a way uh, to Assyriology that way. As for how to find my work, uh, I am on Twitter uh, still, and I refuse to call it anything else until now. <laughs> I quite agree. Uh, <laughs> I am still there. I post letters, funny letters that I find uh, or also read about. I also have a website, uh, which is just iriscamille.com, where I post all of my papers, handouts, slides. And yeah, of course, academia, research gate, anything an academic has to have nowadays. <laughs> awesome. Okay, that's really handy, because I think people are going to follow this with great interest. I think you've so successfully enthused <laughs> us about this language, uh, the work that needs to be done, the process of this language. I mean, it sounds incredible. I can't believe it. I'm feeling strange feelings right now about wanting to jump ship and come study Acadian. <laughs> but oh, no, no, I've got my own PhD to finish first. So um, this has been finish incredible. Finish the PhD and then join us for the postdoc. <laughs> okay, okay. Now you make a strong case. Yeah, you the postdoc. Appreciate <laughs> yeah. it. Uh, well, I'll definitely bear it in mind. And I think, you know, this has just been wonderful. I really hope uh, people take away all that good information and all that enthusiasm that you have so successfully shared with us so thank you very much thank you so much for having me now we have a couple of minutes remaining for danny's fun facts which is my space to share an easily digestible morsel of linguistic knowledge today i want to talk about old english the historical stage of the english language our sources show that old english often contracted two words together especially with the negative element ne, meaning not. For instance, ne itch, meaning not I, could be contracted into the single word nich. Itch ne eum, meaning I am not, could be itch neum. And ne willen, to not want, could be simply nulen. There's a trace of this old contraction today in modern English willy-nilly. Literally, want I, not want I, or a bit better, whether I want to or don't want to. That's it for this episode. Speak soon. Mm -hmm.